to be one of the greatest uh, intro music to a podcast ever, if not the best, it's top five at least. Welcome <laughs> to the Toncast. I'm your host, John Garcia. I'm an illustrator. I'm a designer. I'm a failed stand-up comedian. That's what we're doing here. Um, yeah, and I'm here today with a very special guest. You may know him from being slapped by John Voigt. You may know him as... <laughs> Uh, Vernon from my favorite show, You're the Horse. And you may also know him from his book. It is called uh, The Headache Man, which I've actually started reading, and it's really, really good, really creepy. Oh. Uh, Mr. Todd Robert Anderson, how are you doing today, Todd? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks for uh, getting my book. I didn't know you'd done that, and I'm I'm glad that you like it. But, like, one of the things about self-publishing a book is, you know, it's pretty much you know, friends and people who, who know you, who get it, and then I'm terrified that they'll be like, Jesus Christ, this is horrid. <laughs> yeah, I think any creative endeavor where you put yourself out there is always like, terrifying. Um, my family's always, when can we see you do stand-up, when can we see your stuff? I'm like, never. You're never going to see my stuff. <laughs> and I, I think when you know people, it's a little more, uh, just a little more nerve-wracking, a little more scary. Something. Yeah, that's kind of true. That's that. It, it's weird how that is. I definitely like because I've had to audition for people I know. Um, you know, including the I audition. I didn't audition in front of them, but I auditioned for the casting directors for you are the worst. And it was more nerve wracking knowing that my friend, one of my best friends, <laughs> was going to be watching my tape to see if it was a, it was it's terrifying and I, I, I one time a friend of mine was making an indie movie and he had auditions like at uh, my friend's apartment you know and it was my friends and I went in to audition and it was the most terrifying audition experience I think I've ever had because it was a room full of friendlies I don't know why that, that doesn't make sense you think like here are these people they want to like you they're ready to like you why is it more nerve-wracking to audition for them? I don't know if it's you don't want to disappoint them or maybe it's just you get in your head too much. Something about maybe giving too much away or, you know, kind of losing the mystique of yourself. It's kind of, I don't know. There's something about doing it in front of people, you know. I can perform circles in front of strangers, but my family shows up. It's, it's a wall. It's a wall. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's weird. It's totally weird. So you, but why do you call yourself a failed stand-up? Are you just not doing it anymore, or are you? Are you okay, so I, are you still struggling? Like, what's happening? So uh, I say failed. Um, I guess a quitter mostly because, well, I've been doing it about a year, and you know, you kind of have to like stick it out. You go through the, the parts where you you bomb, you bomb, you do great, you bomb, you go back, and you know, that first year is kind of uh, very important to, to stick with it. And then COVID happened. So all, everything shut down. So, right, of course, you know, it's kind of like, and, and it was starting to get a little toxic. You know, you kind of start feeling like the back of the rooms are a little, you know, you kind of start 
I was starting to put up a little bit more. I was starting to like try to be one of the boys, and I hated that feeling. You know, it's like, okay, I'll let these jokes slide. When in actuality, I should have said something about some of the stuff that was being said in green rooms. You know, that there's just that that boys. Do you? Oh, you mean like you don't mean in their acts? You mean backstage? Yeah, 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 yeah. And are they? And when you say jokes, you should have said something about like were they racist or misogynistic? Like what were the? Oh, oh, you know, run the gamut. A lot of lot of racial stuff, mostly misogynistic, a little bit. You know, and I think you know when you're when you're quiet, it's almost maybe more more just worse than than not saying anything at all. Sometimes you know, just just ignoring it is as complicit. And I wasn't enjoying the uh, the culture of it, so. Uh, you know, I, I kind of took this time to move away from all the you know stand-up stuff and started writing a, a podcast with my my best friend in Boston, and we put out you know we're on like our eighth episode now, so I've enjoyed that way more. That's you said it's a scripted podcast. Yeah, so you know originally like most like most comedian people, you start with improv, and you know you kind of you kind of learn the basics of you know, storytelling, listening mostly. It's mostly about listening. And you're a writer, so you know, like, you know, trying to create compelling characters where you give them a backstory in your head or you, you know, you kind of you kind of create those worlds. And so, you know, it was improvised. It went off the rails super quick. And we're like, we got to write this shit down because <laughs> this is no one's going to want to sit here and, and watch you guys work it out for an hour. Yeah. So we wrote it and got it down to about a 20, 21 minute, 22 minute episode podcast. I know exactly what you mean. When when I first moved to LA, I started a, a late night uh, comedy group, of which Steve Falk was a part. And we still have a podcast called The Film Pigs. And we used to do stage shows uh, back in the ni- late 90s, early aughts. We were doing stage shows. And they were like hour-long parodies of feature films. You know, we did Footloose, we did Halloween, all this different kind of stuff. Um, but when we started doing it, we were it was entirely improvised. We'd sort of outline it, and we'd do rehearsals as, like, in improv mode, but we never wrote, you know, a, a, a play out of it. Um, and what would happen is some nights would go just gangbusters. It'd be unbelievably great we would kill it would feel like a tight show but then the same show you know the next time would be a total disaster because you know someone's improving in a wonky way or things get out off track when you're actually trying to create a narrative it, it can be dicey so that's what we wound up doing was we would develop it like you through improv and then write something and that worked much better I found yeah it was it was very much a I'd say a an exercise and also keeping sane because you know I'd be working from home and he'd be working from home, so we would just throw each other on speakerphone and start talking. And you know, naturally, when you're with a friend, it's it's a back and forth, back and forth. And we just started talking to each other in these voices, and then it, it just like, hey, let's do something. Let's have a let's have a focus here because you know I you know illustration and all that stuff is is great, and doing design for for movie stuff is fun. But at the same time, I really do. Uh, enjoy, you know, talking to friends and performing. Obviously, you know that. And yeah. uh, so, you know, it's really a great way to reconnect because my wife's always on to me about, you need to connect with your friends, you need to connect more with your friends, and that's generally uh-huh. And that kind of brings me to a question I had about your book. So I noticed at the beginning, uh, so I listened to your last episode 
let's do an episode of your interview. And uh, you talked about the headache man kind of is based off of what you deal with, you know, a constant just pain. You haven't killed anyone that I know of. <laughs> yeah. If it comes out, you... I'm not going to admit. I'm not going to admit to it if I did. I know, but if it, if it comes out, I want to be in the HBO documentary where it's like <laughs> I stared with this monster to his face and he blah blah. I, I want that interview. I'm calling it out right now. I want that interview. But uh, the good lighting, the, the the house that's not mine, I want that. But um, so I noticed the beginning. Your character, your main character, he notices his headache. The first time uh it's he's at the movies and it's the first time it's right after he his friends leave after visiting him and you're very uh i don't want to say anti-la but you're very much oh la is a presence in the Mm and it's almost like this you're the rat and la is the cage and it's kind of like maybe that's what caused it but i was like is there some kind of like parallel to you know friendship and a guy kind of in your world you're like you're an actor you're pursuing a dream when you do that you kind of leave your friends behind a little bit you know you kind of have to start attaching yourself to more ambitious people and you might lose track with some of those tertiary friends is there any kind of truth behind like that writing or as your personal experience you know with with friendship as someone who's in in hollywood you know and acting and, and uh, I, I just want to clarify what you're asking. So you're asking about in the book, the the friend who's in from out of town. Yeah. So when they when they leave, you know, that's kind of the, that's when you, your character starts noticing this pain. And it's when yeah. they left. That's kind of when everything starts for him. And it's almost like he's leaving behind this this old part of him, you know, his friends, his past friends. And he's moving forward in L.A., you you really said you're very methodical in your mentioning of Los Angeles. And I was yeah. wondering if there's anything like that that you experienced. Um, for sure. I, I, in that, I so many of the friends that I have in LA, and, and and I have people who I've met in LA, including my wife. But um, a lot of the friends that I have in LA, I I had from other places, mostly New York. You know, we went to college together. We all sort of moved out here around the same time. Um, and we were a support system, um, but definitely um, leaving. And I still talk to friends f- from Massachusetts, uh, where I grew up. You know, childhood friends and all that. Um, but that 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 is a thing. And my family too, moving out here and being th- this separate from them. Um, uh, even now, you know, more than two decades in, still has a. I don't know. It still kind of aches a little bit. Uh, there is a homesickness. I mean, I would never, I would never move back to Massachusetts. I have no desire to ever live there again. Um, um, uh, and I would like to live other places other than LA eventually. But also, that would now what keeps me in LA now is less about my career and more about all the friends that I have. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and and I have a family here, and we're connected to other families and friends, and it's just to remove ourselves from it would be, you know, it would be super jarring. Um, you know, part of me wants to because I do have a wanderlust, even though I wind up staying in one place for decades at a time. Uh, but yeah, I do have the like those friendships from from growing up. I I do miss that. It, it was just a. 
I don't know. There's something about those bonds uh, when you're when you're going through uh, 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 puberty and 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 coming of age and everything together. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And 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 the, with those certain people, when I talk to them again, it's you know, it, it, it's the click happens so fast. There's no, you know, awkward getting things rolling again. It's just like, oh my god, you know, we, the same rapport we had when we were twelve, we have now. So yeah, I I definitely feel the the book. I don't want to say too much because I hate putting uh, as an author. I hate putting ideas into people's heads yeah. about themes and all that crap uh, uh, but uh, there's there's a there's a kind of through line at least for me in my head about innocence and the loss of innocence and what that means um, and 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 in that moment you know with his friend coming in from out of town and discovering this pain definitely that's part of it because that that Friendship is from a time of innocence, and now things are different. If that makes sense, oh, that, that makes perfect sense. I have, um, you know, when you get older, I I lived in this like little West Texas town called Midland for so long, and then I followed my now wife to Albuquerque, and then where I'm at currently in Austin, and you kind of, you know, you you, you start attach, you start, you know, finding who you're going to be. You know, it usually takes longer than you think. But eventually, but you start uh, losing touch with people. And so when I was in Albuquerque, I wrote this like really, you know, every, it was every short, first short film about. It's, it's an indie, it's too melodramatic, it's got the music's better than the actual movie is. But I wrote this uh, short and directed and made it called uh, Drinking with Strangers. And it was about kind of like how we use this, this guise of uh, drinking because we're too scared to tell people we miss them. So it's kind of like, let's reconnect with some mundane, you know, arbitrary activity. And how we all just really, we don't want to lose that part of us, but we realize sometimes we have to lose that part of us from our past. But it's what built us, too. So you can't completely forget it. It it kind of creates your foundations. And so I'm always interested in people's creative endeavors, uh, how they they kind of guide who they become and and all that. So that's always interesting me as a a student of people. Yeah, that's true. There's sort of a give and take between what somebody's living and how it ins- how it inspires their creativity, but also how their creativity inspires their living. Yeah, that's that's a good observation. I totally agree. <laughs> um, so you're you're an artist. I have your art hanging on my walls. It's you can't see it from where you're sitting, and nobody at home. And your audience can see it either, but I have three pieces on my office wall. One's an original uh, uh, that you you made and you sent to me of of Vernon mm-hmm. from You're the Worst, and then a couple are are prints uh, of of the crew of the You're yeah. the Worst crew. Um, now, do you consider yourself a fan artist or? Were you inspired? Because I've seen you do fan art for other stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, do you consider yourself that, or you're an artist who is a fan who does this fan art in addition to other stuff that you do? Let's see. Um, well, I am definitely. I, I definitely will am a fan artist. Like stuff I love, I will. It, it definitely creates and inspires me to do stuff. And fun fact, uh, you're one of three cast members of You're the Worst who has an original. Uh, the guy, the kid he played. Um, 
what's his, that's the kid's name, forgetting his name, uh, Killian. He's got, oh, Killian, he's got yeah. an original, and oh, wow. uh, Desmond has an original of this character. Oh, wow. So y'all are, y'all are up three who have originals. We're exclusive. exclusive. We're exclusive. That's sweet. But yeah, um, so the illustration, yeah, I, I, I do a lot of fan art because that's just what I enjoy. I guess I kind of moved away from like fine art type stuff. I just like drawing characters I love in my style. Mm-hmm. And that's like my outlet. And I do art for like, uh, you know, movies, like indie movies, uh, music musicians that cover our podcast art. I, I work with other indie creatives just because we're all kind of in the same boat and you kind of collaborate and meet cool people. And uh, yeah, so I, I guess I am a fan artist. Like if I'm illustrating, I'm a fan artist. If I'm doing like graphic design, that's my like money making career. But fan art is just a cool way to connect with people and find people who enjoy the same kind of stuff you do. And it's really cool to just connect with a stranger and say, hey, I love that obscure show you drew a picture about. Like, yeah, it's awesome, isn't it? Yeah. I've bought uh, from people I don't even know, just having seen it online, different pieces of fan art. There's a – well, you can see behind me, see that that little blue thing back there? That's – the Thing, it's from The Thing, which is one of my favorite movies. Awesome. It's just fan art that I loved. I thought it was amazing. So I, I, got, I got a print of it. And I have like a, I have a, an alien guy, you know, a xenomorph and, and all that stuff. So I'm like a fan of fan art. Yeah. I, um, I think the fan art might be the truest form because if you ever look at like the commercial like movie one sheets, right? They're always the same. The Photoshop, you know, all the faces, mm-hmm. names, blah, blah, blah. But then you look at like who's creating like cool minimalist art or cool like just very unique, and you're like, that should have been the poster for the movie. Like, why wasn't that the poster for the movie? That's incredible. Or like old right. school Japanese uh, hand painted uh, movie posters. Like, that's incredible. The old Star Wars posters, you know, the, the hand painted. Like, so yeah. I'm a fan. It's- I guess a fan artist as well. They're they're incredible. There's some really great people out there. And that, like, the thing about movie posters now is I feel like they're all kind of cut from the same cloth and they've become very bland. Mm-hmm. They use, like, the same color palette, every one, you know, and it's not, it's not like, what, who did those, like, Indiana Jones ones? Uh, I feel like his name was, like, Drew, his last name was Drew or something? I'm blanking on his name, but yeah, he's, he's one of, like, the last true, like, artists who was commissioned to paint movie posters. Yeah. And yeah, I think yeah, it, it's I'm, very I'm, templated now, like a very much a template. Like star has to go center two thirds up, you know, second co-star here, blah blah blah. It needs to include this, 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 and so and so. You know, it's always more of a checklist than an actual like art, and so it kind of right. I saw on Twitter, I saw a a poster for the upcoming reboot of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually really liked it. Uh, uh, you know, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, this is just cool fan art. But then it turns out he's a commission artist making a poster. And I was like, well, you don't see posters like that very much anymore. So so that was refreshing. Yeah, I think horror movie posters have maybe some of the best because I think probably like the executives in charge of that aren't as interested. So they're kind of like, whatever, it's just a poster who cares. And then so those guys <laughs> get a little more, maybe those guys get a little more free reign. You know, it's the one. Maybe. It's the one with no. Robert Downey Jr.'s got to take up forty percent of the poster. That's in his contract. He has to have. You know, it's always something. Right, so. right, right, <laughs> right. That's funny. Yeah, I, I we were talking uh, on Twitter about uh, the upcoming uh, 
Friday the 13th uh, box set, mm-hmm. um, which is like wrapped in this awesome art. Yeah. I don't, you know, it's all these different versions of Jason and everything running around and it's so cool. And I'm like, why, why aren't all, why isn't all movie marketing that cool? I, I just, I think that because it used to be, yeah, maybe it's, it's because they're trying to entice people to buy a hard copy now because so many people are like, I already own it digitally. Why would I need a hard copy? But when you make it worth something like a, a, a shelf piece, so to speak, I guess it's right. always maybe they'll give a little more leeway or maybe they're just like, it's another Friday 13 cash grab. We'll let whoever, do, whoever does it find, find who has the most likes on the picture and we'll, we'll turn it, but you never know. I mean, but there's some really great, uh, you know, horror artists and all these, uh, I mean, I have a, a buddy who makes uh, scary movies and he runs like a haunted house and stuff like that. And he worked with, he was an indie movie, so he worked with really creative guys and his, his marketing stuff was incredible. Like it was old school 70s grindhouse type style and it was just an old school <laughs> slasher B movie type movie. And it was so good. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. How 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 much time? So you said you're you do graphic design as well. Is that what you're saying? Yep. And and what and you do that for indie movies mostly. So my my day is uh, every morning I wake up I'll do an illustration try to do at least one illustration. Uh, my day job is I'm a learning designer for a, a restaurant company that's up and coming like chain restaurant called Torchy's Tacos. It's a Texas chain that's kind of like growing. It's like in five states now, so it's one of those like up and coming. So I do like learning design, so I'll design like games and you know training manuals and stuff like that. So that's my day job. And then um, you know at night, I'll my buddy uh, has a new movie coming out. It's called Millennium Bugs. It's a it's like a '90s uh, indie flick, and uh, that's actually premiering at Dances with Films in a, in a week or two, I think. But uh, oh, so wow. I work with him a lot, and I'll do a lot of his posters and his art. And uh, this guy's really cool. He was actually on that Robert Rodriguez show, Rebel Without a Crew. He was one of the filmmakers on that, so he's one of my really good friends. And I work with him and some other filmmakers, and you know, just kind of, I'll do like, I'll do, I do all the stuff no one cares about, like the credits, the subtitles, the oh. uh, you know, the, the title <laughs> credits, you know, just that stuff you you would not, you would only notice if it's not there. <laughs> So, right. Yeah. People don't people don't realize what goes into that stuff. Mm-hmm. And like cre- like credits too are expensive. Mm-hmm. That's like people don't realize all those stupid names you don't pay attention to. They cost a lot of money. They do and they have to be in the right order and they have to be, you know, the right title and it's it's a whole slog, but you know, working with indies is cool because we're all just trying to to make something cool and you know, it, it's it's really it's it's just tough to, you know, whenever my friend has a movie premiering and he has to compete with, you know, the marketing of $70 million of marketing minimum. <laughs> so, you know, it's hard to be a cult favorite now. It's really hard. Yeah, it is hard. I did a, I did a, a indie film a bunch of years ago and it's good, you know, but it was a no budge movie. So there's, a, you know, and it did well. We were in tons of little festivals, including dances with films and, we won a lot of awards and stuff, but you know it's still not a cult film. It's it's uh, you you need that that marketing push from a studio just to even make a cult film. Yeah, these days. I mean, every every studio has an indie film division. How weird is that's like that's why? <laughs> yeah, it's it's bullshit. Is what it is. It's not indie films. They're just lower budgeted. You know, either Oscar bait or you know. Yeah. 
Well, it's 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 Romantic. low budget. Low budget is still five million dollars, and we're over here trying to make a Kickstarter for like fifty thousand, and that's just so we can pay the actors. I know. <laughs> I know when people are like, "Yeah, it's a it was a, a micro budgeted film at seven million dollars." It's like, where one? Where's that money come from? Where do people get <laughs> that money? Yeah. Why can't I have some? Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's it's bananas. Like what, what I would do with one million of that? Like what you know? What kind of? Yeah, exactly. Give me a million dollars. I'll make something look like twenty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that was the thing. You know about this indie movie I did called Fuzz Track City is, uh, you know, it was just the talent involved and the people who came to came onto the project basically because they liked my friend's screenplay. You know, it just inspired a bunch of people, and then it was for no money, uh, making it look as as good as possible, and did an amazing job with with you know very little resources. I thought, and I bet you had a blast making it with you know. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, I think I had a better time than some of the other people because you know it's 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 you know tensions can run <laughs> can run high yeah. when it's hot out and people are you know it's funny. I mean, it's like every when I have a, a, a professional gig where I'm getting paid and there's negotiations and managers and agents and then I have a trailer of some kind, you know it it. it it helps. It's weird. It sounds like, you know, everybody thinks like Hollywood people are just spoiled brats and they want all these toys and all, you know, their own rooms and leave me alone and all <laughs> that, all that stuff. But really, just having a respite to get away from the difficulties of being on set is really nice. So when you're on a low budget thing and you have a chair, you know, it's uh, it, it, pe- people are uh, it's too crowded and people get tense. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see, you know, the little creature comforts. I'm seeing, well, I mean, you see that now with just not even film production, just life in general. People want everything to be so comfortable and normal again, and they won't let themselves be a little uncomfortable so that we can all get back to that. And it's that's very true. It's very frustrating, especially here in Austin, because I live, I live on uh, Rainy Street, which is like one of the party streets. You know, it's kind of we have one, we we're kind of on the end of it, but you still see people like flocking here like it's a regular weekend and they're they're all drinking outside but they're still like super close to each other and you know i don't go out to that i'm staying home but you still see like you know it's just really frustrating to see like when i'm i'm staying home i'm trying to not you know get sick and make someone else's grandparents sick but you see everyone else is having fun you feel like you're that kid you know who's homesick while it's a snow day and you're like, I just want to go outside and play so bad right now, but I can't. Yeah. And it also, one of the things that it's made me feel is like, am like, have I become an overnight agoraphobe? Am I a shut in now? Is that, (laughs) that's how I feel when I drive by all these restaurants in my neighborhood and people are eating out in the parking lots. But at the same time, I mean, because my, my industry's essentially shut down. Um, so I haven't been able to work all year and, and I don't have the money to go out to a restaurant. Um, but if I did, I'm, I'm looking at it and it doesn't look like that much fun to me. Yeah. It's, it seems like you, like the, the prep to do it properly is 
way more like I'd be anxious the whole time, like just constantly, like yeah. every cough, every sniffle. I'd be like, can we, can we go? Can we go? Like, what? Why are we here? Like, there's beer at home. There's beer at home. There's, you know. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that you don't have at home is someone to prepare your food for you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I I have a family, and we take turns making food, so I guess that you know. But we, it, it, I, it's restaurants like the whole the whole creature comfort of it for me is that it's fun. It's fun to go out and have someone bring you your food and yap with your friends and family or whatever. And then and then leave and you don't have to clean up or anything. That's the fun of it. But it just it doesn't look like fun anymore when I drive by it. Yeah, yeah. We've been um, our 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 podcast. We work with a lot of like um, performers and comedians, so we get like voice talent. So we're getting a bunch of like indie people to just lend their voices to it. And you know, we, we have a little after show. We kind of just talk and we always kind of check in with them. And all of them are like, I would love to be on the stage. We tried Zoom improv. It's so it's so awkward. It doesn't work. And it's like we we really want to, but it seems like these performers are just uh, people who are like 100% performers, which I consider myself a part-time performer. But these people are like they live and die on the stage. They're having such a hard time, and I feel bad for them too because I'm like I've been entertained by you, and now you can't do what you love to do. And it's really I know people are like oh way away and it's performing. I'm like yeah, but you're watching all this stuff on Netflix. Someone performed that. Someone created all this stuff. Right. You're consuming it. If it went away, what would you do? Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's very true. I I. I started, uh, a friend of mine is producing a show, a live show on Wednesdays called My Favorite Shitty Movie that you go on Facebook and it just plays live. And then you can watch the, uh, watch it, if you miss it, you can watch it, you know, for a few weeks after or whatever. Um, and, and it's just a talk show, essentially, a comedic, with a comedic bent. Um, but it is nice to do that. I mean, it's not acting. Um, which I really can't do much of right now, uh, but it's nice to to perform on some level, and that like that talk show format that you that you can do with a Zoom situation, or there's lots of other uh, uh, companies that you can do it through. But uh, I don't know that fills some of that um, void for me. Um, what, what was the know, last set you were on? Uh, the last set I was on was uh, uh, it was a commercial for a uh, uh, credit card. Um, yeah, it, I mean it was filmed on location in a bunch of places, uh, <laughs> actually in places near where you're the worst shot mm-hmm. over in Silver Lake and Echo Park and all that. Um, and that was that was it. It was uh, I don't know October or November of last year. Yeah, I remember I saw you in a commercial uh, before a movie, like one of the last movies I went. It was you were in an arcade riding a motorcycle, like so some insurance, oh, yeah. insurance I think or something. I don't know. Yeah, that was progressive. One of those flow commercials. Yeah, yeah, that was a good one. I was hoping they would keep that around for a few more years, but they didn't. Oh come on, you could have. Yeah, should have gone Geico. They could, it was Geico, it was cruel. Because they can't. Because I don't. I don't know if you know how commercials work, but the way it works is, if you book like a national spot, 
that's the one you want because that's you makes the most money. It's in the most marketplaces, and they and they run it. You know, you get paid in thirteen week cycles. So every thirteen weeks, if they're gonna keep playing it, they send you more residual money, more mailbox money, which is cool. But then at the end of twenty one months, the contract is up. And if they want to keep using in the commercial, they have to come back and renegotiate with your agents. And that's when you really make the crazy money that people used to talk about in the 80s. Oh, if you get a national commercial, you can buy a house. That hasn't been true my entire career. <laughs> but like, you can get close to it if, if it goes past that 21 months. And then they call and then the money talks happen. And it gets exciting. And they literally did that. We did the whole negotiation and we had landed on figures and I was like, cool, that's great. They'll keep playing that commercial. It's funny. I'll make a bunch of money. And then like right at the last second, they're like, nah, we don't want it. <laughs> and then that was it. I was like, oh, you got to be fucking kidding me. And if, if they had, it would have been so much better for my life yeah. <laughs> because of this COVID bullshit because I'd still be getting those residual checks. Oh, man. I, well, they missed out. I always enjoyed your uh, your performances. I, you know, You're the Worst was one of my uh, favorite shows, and your character kind of spoke to me as a guy who was just, he just wanted a friend. Like, at the end of the day, <laughs> Vernon just wanted a friend. You know, one of my favorite lines is, they're having a party, and he's like, why did you invite Jimmy? And he's like, because men stop making friends at 30. It's science. And I'm like, that's so fucking true. That is so, it's really hard to make a real friend. <laughs> after a certain age because you're just like you're not you know maybe work friends which are not really friends those are kind of like I call them fluorescent light friends they're like you know we take yeah, fluorescent yeah. lights out of this it's just brutal or you know wife's friends and it's like you'll like him he likes sports too I'm like that's not a basis for a friendship I'm like we, we, <laughs> he likes sports he too. likes the same round ball you like I'm like that's how I made friends as, as a four year old and we see how those relationships have lasted. So it, it's, <laughs> that might not be the best starting point. Yeah, <laughs> it's like sometimes you see someone you know interesting. You're like, you just want to say, can you you want to be my friend? And I know they'll probably be like, yeah, I want a friend too. But no one does that. <laughs> I guess that's one of the sort of blessings of being an actor is that if you stay in it, is you do meet coworkers that can become your friends. Um, I don't know. It's different. Like I do a podcast now called uh, uh, Two Out of Work Actors Bitching with Lombardo Boyar, and uh, he's become a very good friend of mine. But we met through you know work basically. Um, but you know we liked joking around with each other. I mean, it, it's acting is a very social thing too because you you. Spend so much time, even if you do have a trailer, you spend so much time sitting around because you can't go back to your trailer all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, they do a take and then you sit down and then they adjust something and you have to run right back. So you wind up sitting around with actors a lot and you got nothing to do but read and talk. So you wind up talking and you form friendships that way. It's, it's not the same as if you have two cubicle jobs and you're both you know, just doing data entry for eight hours next to each other, you're not going to, like, start joking around too much. I mean, you know, it's a very, in a weird way, like, acting, I, I don't want to belittle acting or make it sound juvenile, but it there's, like, su such a, there is a young, childlike spirit to the whole thing of, of playing, yeah. you know? So I think you know actors and actors are social creatures obviously so you know you you can wind up making pretty good 
friendships in adulthood, you know, of, of all kinds, like people who aren't necessarily your age, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I find as I get older, um, my friends, my real good friends are people who have, uh, I guess, just the same ambitions I have. Like, I have friends who still live in my old hometown. They're still my friends, but they're not, you know, they're not, they're kind of just settled. They're fine with, you know, I make my money, my out, you know, and I'm like, that's cool. Um, you know, I'm, glad, I'm really glad you're happy. At the same time, uh, I'm not. I couldn't stay there. That town was so, uh, God, it was just so close-minded. It's the kind of town where when I go back, my dad or my mom will always tell people, this is our son John from Austin, almost like they're trying to say, so excuse him if he says anything liberal or open-minded. So just <laughs> please, please, please ignore that. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a town that just this year uh, voted to change the name of the school from Robert E. Lee High School. Oh, one of those. Yeah. So, so are you? Is is most of your family conservative? You know, they're, they're, my mom is one of those people who I'm very proud of because she was used to be. You know, she tried raising me Catholic and did not work. Um, mm -hmm. But she used to be, uh, you know, kind of the, the the typical Catholic. Just this whole, you know, cat, you know, gays are going to hell, blah blah blah. But then she got uh, breast cancer, and one of the sweetest people to her was uh, this guy, our friend. He was a hairdresser, and he, uh, you know, he has a husband, and he was super sweet. And my mom just kind of had this like moment of like, you know what? I'm not to judge anyone. So she really turned that like conservative, like she's like reformed. It's it's really incredible. Um, That's cool. But my my dad is he's a good guy. He's he's really you know he's an awesome guy, but he is a former police officer and ah. but he had to deal with this whole aspect of being one uh you know a latino man and two a police officer so he had like his people were like you're a sellout and the cop culture telling him you're one of them so he he lived in this like bubble which is how i kind of live that was kind of my comedy world too it's like I, none of my jokes were based off my culture because i grew up in the burbs with a bunch of white kids one of my jokes is I was I grew up playing soccer and white kids, which means one thing: I pass the ball. That's what I do. I don't do tricks. I just pass the ball. But so, uh, yeah, I grew up in this middle ground where I was on the golf team, but they didn't really like me that much, and the Mexican kids didn't like me that much. So I would just be like, "All right, I'm just going to play the solo sport of golf where no one talks to me, and then draw my pictures, and we'll move on." And writing my uh -huh. writing my books like a little nerd, but you know it worked out for me. My wife's I show people like, look at my wife, super hot, and we live in Austin. <laughs> <laughs> so when I go back to when I go back to home to visit my family, but yeah, I always say I got out. It, it, was, it was it's a weird place to, to go back to. I grew up in a a, a small town uh, that was also pretty conservative as well, and my mom brought me up Catholic. Uh, or tried to, which also didn't work out. But then, uh, and she was never uh, um, a Bible thumping, you know, I hate gay people Catholic. Uh, but um, eventually she, and I, like you're proud of your mom, I was, I was proud of her and her progressivism, I guess you can call it, because it was progressive. Uh, given where she was coming from, but she she left the Catholic Church, uh, uh, just abandoned it because. Uh, and I I thought it was I was like, is it because of all the, 
you know, creepy priests. And uh, she said, no, I, I hate how the Catholic Church handles its money. <laughs> uh, and I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, they spend so much money on this nonsense, like telling kids not to wear condoms and telling kids, you know, not to be gay. It's a waste of money. It, and, it's, it, and I don't like it. And I was like, oh, OK, <laughs> well, that's a good reason. She got there. She yeah, yeah, exactly. She still goes to church. She goes to like I don't know some other type of Christian church, but she doesn't do the Catholic thing anymore, which is good because I really don't like like that church myself. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm not a fan of it. Um, not a fan of it. I went to a Catholic school. I went to a couple. Was asked to leave the first one, and then went to a second one. <laughs> And why? 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 First one, first one I pushed a nun because I was asking too many questions. Like she did the whole ruler. It was one of those like old school Catholic schools, uh-huh. uh, St. Anne's in Midland, and I would totally call those people up. But she slapped me, pushed her, and then they suggested I pursue other uh, educational endeavors. How old were you? I was in third grade. <laughs> third grade. <laughs> They couldn't handle a third grader? No. Fucking nuts. So let's, let's go forward. Uh, I want to go to this other school called St. Mary's. And when I get there, there is, uh, right when I start, someone is going into the bathrooms and they're plugging up the sink with paper towels and wetting toilet paper and throwing it on the ceiling. And so they, oh, they think immediately that. think it's me because I'm the new kid. So they make me start oh. signing out to go to the bathroom. They make me uh, take a buddy to the bathroom. And so I wound up leaving there. You fast forward a few years, I found out my now wife was the kid who was doing that. She was the vandal. She was like a first grader, and she was going in there. And I didn't know her at the time. She tells me this years later. I'm devastated. I'm like, you're the reason, one of the reasons I'm not Catholic right now, if you're happy. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's a crazy coincidence. Uh, so you want to go full circle? I, mean- I, 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 wound up, I wound up working for an NPC station years later. I did a commercial for that very same Catholic school. And I will go on record and say, I severely overcharged them for it. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Good. (laughs) Get them. Get them. Got them. Get those Catholics. They have all the money. That's less money to go to weird, you know, uh, weird education they they pursue. I don't know what the hell they're teaching now. I don't know. Something weird, I'm sure. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, I don't, uh, and it it burns my ass that my tax dollars have gone to bailing out the Catholic Church in this country. I don't get it. Yeah, that's you know, as when you get older, you're like, wait a minute, wait, where else my money going to? What, what what am I getting out of this? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and beyond that, it, like the fact that we're bailing out churches that don't pay taxes. Yeah. Is I'm what. What? Yeah, I'm like that doesn't make I God help any sense. I thought God helped those who helped themselves. What's this? What, what are you sticking your hand out for, man? What's going on? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's because they have so much friggin', they have so much, they have so many legal fees about all the molestations that they've covered up, and they can't. You break, they, you break a lot. Nobody's going to church because of the thing, yeah. so they don't have tithings, so they can't pay off the people they've molested. You break a lot of. That's what it is. Yeah, you break a lot of and, rooms when you're sweeping stuff under the rug. Break a lot of rooms. Exactly. And it just, it burns my ass so much that we're paying for that. We are paying for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I knew someone personally who had an issue with that. And what's funny is the, the victim shaming of stuff. You know, it's like they were trying to, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. This kid was like nine years old. Like, leave him alone, man. You're, you're victim shaming a nine-year-old? Like, come on, man. Really? I'm like, That's crazy. I'm like, come on. But yeah, I can totally side with you on that. Like, why, why are we bailing this out? Like, at what point? I mean, hell, Jesus did sermons from a rock. There's rocks everywhere. They're free. They're just yeah, outside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just go preach on a rock. Like I'll chip in. I'll yeah. chip in five bucks for a rope. You can go handle it. Just, just you know, <laughs> Facebook yeah. invite. You're good. Facebook invite a rock. Got it. Yeah, if you're not literally turning uh, water into wine and stretching one piece of fish to feed a thousand people, then we really shouldn't have to bail you out because they're not doing that. Right? I, they don't do that. I show up, I get a little shot glass of grape juice and that little you know, disc of bread, and I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. This is not a full spread. What's going on? The, the communion wafer is... What is that? Like, wh- what do they make that out of? It, it tastes... I don't know what it tastes like. It has, it has an unpleasant texture. It's weird to bite into. It sticks to the roof of your mouth. Yeah. It's gross. It, it's gross. What is that? What do they make it out Well, I had a friend who, uh, I guess his parents, I don't, okay, so it's very weird the fact that his parents were shopping for a new church, essentially. They were trying out churches, which I'm like, what, what, what is the criteria? But he, he like became this like connoisseur of, of communion wafers. Like he had so many different, he's like, well, that place is weird. They, they rip the bread and they dip it in the wine. It's really weird like the catholics make you all drink from the same cup he had this like whole like if it were now he would have a youtube channel like taste testing communion wafers like this is how this kid was like 12 years old and me and him were talking about the virtues of different communion wafers (laughs) yeah what did you do because in uh i remember i had the choice you could have a sip of wine there was no way i was sharing some crappy wine with the rest of the congregation. That's weird. Uh, you know, the, it's just gross. <laughs> and then, but then you had the choice of the priest laying the shitty tasting wafer directly on your tongue. Mm-hmm. Or you could hold out your hands and he put it in your hands and you could feed yourself. I always went with the feed myself option because I didn't, it felt weird to me to have a grown man feeding me i don't didn't it was weird yeah i I, yeah it was a a very like i don't know how you make that choice like especially the the catholic church you have to do the line right where you walk up and you know row by Uh row and you you do your little hand motion you have a class for it yeah you have to decide are you going to be handed at it or are you going to be fed it and then the wine do you take the cup do you let the guy sip it for you are we all sharing this Uh And I remember the church, one of the churches we went to, they had like, I don't know what kind of red this was, but it was strong. And I'm like a, you know, 12 year old, like, oh God, or whatever, how old I was, you know. But then I went to a a church called First Christian. They passed it. It was like this big tray of shot glasses of grape juice. And then this piece of bread that you ripped off of. And I'm like, oh, this is, there's no standard here. Y'all just kind of wing it, right? (laughs) Like Sam, Sam's had a sale. Y'all bought a bunch of loaves. Holy man waved his hand over it, and y'all called it a day. I'm like, all right, I can, I can, I can, I can understand a good deal. 
<laughs> I guess, yeah, if it's cheap. I mean, that must be what the, the wafers must have been made out of the cheapest possible stuff. Because I remember seeing him, seeing the priest, because sometimes I did, like, I wasn't an official altar boy, but it's such a small town. If, like, one of the altar boys was sick or whatever, they'd, they'd yank some other kid into you're it, in so the, I would get yanked into it. You were in the reserve. It. Yeah, like a reserve. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't be wearing the altar boy. Like the altar boy would be wearing some kind of uniform, uh, but I would be the shit altar boy who didn't really have a uniform. Yeah, uh, because the other guy's sick. But I remember seeing the priest pulling out the communion wafers from back in the office or whatever it's called, whatever the priest office is called, and it was just a giant trap, yeah. like a clear giant bag yeah. of this. This garbage bread. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have a logo on it. And somewhere there's a guy. There's a there's a communion wafer millionaire out there, and he's just living. There's gotta I mean, be. there's a guy who's like, oh, this this is all bought by communion wafers by Maserati. <laughs> That's communion wafer. <laughs> he's like, the late nineties were a little rough. Though I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we rebounded a lot. We rebounded a lot. We're getting the government bailouts. Yeah. <laughs> I hope he saved his money because this COVID shit's got to be killing him. Nobody wants to share food right now. Well, it's it's the churches who have the communion, the communal bread. I think they're the ones suffering the most. Yeah, it's like exactly. for all the well, for all, you know, for all the money they have, I need an olive oil to dip it in. I want something nice, a nice, you know, something. <laughs> yeah, why can't it be good? Can't it be a, why can't it be good bread? Focaccia. Was Jesus? Was the bread Jesus served like crap tasting, or was it good? What What are we talking about? Because is it really a miracle if he handed out a bunch of shitty bread? He's like, I present the Iron Kids bread. <laughs> like, come on, Jesus, or <laughs> can we do, at least do a little bit better? Multi grain, come on, bud. <laughs> Why are you watering down the wine, you jackass? Come on, you. <laughs> high test. These are biblical times. It's scary out here. <laughs> With the weird sandals. I want the multigrain. I want the I want the sourdough, bud. Come on. <laughs> Come on, yeah. Give me the sourdough. <laughs> Give me some of that brown cheesecake factory bread that all warmed up <laughs> with butter. Take a red lobster yeah. roll at the very least. Come on, a red lo- a cheddar <laughs> bay biscuit. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> at the very least. Uh, or like some focaccia bread, or you know, or some a rosemary bread would be nice. Anything. Seems appropriate. Come on. Yeah. Get it together. Yeah, me, me and Todd Catholic fixing the Catholic Church. <laughs> Just better food. We are we are not Catholics, but we'll, we're helping you guys. We'll look the other. I would have looked the other way about that molestation if the bread was better, but it's crap. So you know, you guys are assholes. You gotta appease the people. It's like when when your food's late, they'll give you a free soda. Just make the bread better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, the, exactly. well, the problem was that they serve crappy bread at bread, and people still turn a blind eye. So they're like, "We don't have to do anything. It's fine. It's no one seems yeah. to care." About yeah, it's messed up. <laughs> the the bad precedents have been set in the Catholic Church. It's just we should let it close down, let it go out of business. Well, it's like Ron Swanson said: it, you know, capitalism. It's uh, who's smart and who's stupid, who's successful and who's a failure. Let it, let it, let let what be will be. Yeah, exactly. We should not be bailing them out. Let them figure it out. If they can't do it, then that's it for the Catholic Church. Bye bye. Right. I'm gonna. Get, we're gonna get a lot of letters. Uh, people are gonna get real mad. Oh man, I made a video about the my old the Robert E. Lee school. I was telling you about. It. I made a video about it, and it kind of went a little viral on Facebook, especially in my hometown. I have never gotten so many uh, horribly misspelled uh, death threat messages from people. 
what was your video? What did the what was the video? It was basically a rundown of how Robert E. Lee wasn't uh, you know, a hero, part of the heritage. He was a traitor. You know, it's like this her- you know, you're you're celebrating a traitorous loser. And that's what he is. He's a traitorous loser. And it's like, if you bitch about kneeling for a flag, you should really be bitching about this, because this is, you're celebrating a flag of losers and traitors. And uh, I wouldn't compare it, you know, you obviously compare them to Nazis, and they don't have Nazi imagery up as memorials. They have it in museums where it belongs. So that was the whole video I made. Because it was a stand-up that I had written, because the, the, the thing was, when I went to high school, uh, I don't know if you know the football player Cedric Benson. He passed away recently, but he was a you know first round draft pick. He was a you know he won three state championships for Robert U. Lee High School. And I just made a whole bit about how funny it was to see this dominant black athlete just destroy defenses. And then you look up, and they would have Confederate flags flying in the stands because that was their school flag or one of the, the, the school pride flags. And they would have Confederate flags. So you look up, and then you see this black athlete, I'm like, you guys are realizing the white supremacy is not, is losing kind of some of the allure when the guy winning all these state championships is a black guy, right? You'll, you'll see that, right? And no, they did not care for that one. Bit. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. <laughs> and so you, it's so funny because I just, I, you know, uh, it's so true that when people get mad at me on Facebook that I know who are conservative, they send me weird, angry things, and they the misspellings are like what? Do they not have spell autocorrect on their phone? Do, are they is it like how do they do that? Maybe they're just how do, so defiant that they don't even want to let the machine correct them. They're like, no, no, that's out. That's what I'm feeling. I'm feeling this this anger. I'm, I'm feeling these misspellings. It's how it goes. Well, the, the, it's, the best way to reply is to correct them, like grammar, and be like, all right, I know what you're trying to say here, but your you know, hypothesis is a little wonky. Your, you know, your, your main statement's a little off. You know, I think you meant your with an R-E and apostrophe here. I don't know. You know, just, they don't care for that either. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 the, the other day, I, this woman sent me a thing, and and it like she misspelled the word believe apologetic like like every other word anything that was more than one syllable she fucked up and i was like what you want me to take you seriously when you can't i mean come on right you you look really stupid right now i'm sorry i just don't want to have a conversation with someone who can't spell apologetic it's it's like i don't know yeah it's i don't you know, it's the type of person who sends a, a, a hateful message or, uh, you know, just, just a very personal declaration of what they believe and how you're wrong is a special kind of person. And God bless them. I always, that's always what you say. God bless you for, for trying. Yeah. <laughs> or, I, man, you know, it's, it's nice to have a First Amendment. You can say these things, right? Cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's, isn't that swell? Um, I was I, earlier when we were talking about uh, the 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 cafes that you're witnessing outside uh, in Austin, and I wa- I wondered about that, like politically speaking. I mean, are it's Austin's a liberal town. Are these a bunch of liberals that are out there, uh, uh, not social distancing, without masks, and at cafes? Yeah, uh, the you know, young and having money 
type of people uh, that supersedes any type of political when you want to have a good time. So you know, it, it's 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 a bunch of you know younger people, and I I feel weird saying that because you know it is, but it is a bunch of like twenty twenty to twenty nine year olds. Obviously, like you know, I'm down to live forever. I'm like I'm thirty eight. Like you're not. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's classic. I mean, we we were all there. Yeah, it's just weird that it's happening during a pandemic. But yeah, for sure. When I was in my twenties. I I thought I was immortal for sure. Yeah, I'm paying for it now. Like enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. You gotta kind of I. You gotta understand it. That's a thing. It's like you don't really get like until you're in your late twenties, early thirties. Your the the mortality, the reality of mortality doesn't really kick in. Yeah, I think I think it's one of those like uh, once you see your parents the first time you look at them, you're like, holy crap, they're old. Like you you you, that, you know that there's that moment everyone has when you look at your parents, you're like, oh my god, what what happened? Yeah. Like it's just a day, it's one random day, and you notice it. You're like, wait a minute, whoa, okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 and well, and the truth is, the older you get, the more funerals you wind up going to, and that sort of sinks in after a while. Oh yeah, it's all it's all twenties, it's all weddings. And it's like, hey, guess who died? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's more funerals when you get into your 40s and 50s than weddings. And if you do go to weddings, they're like second weddings and third I, weddings. I, I refuse to go to a second wedding. Like, especially if I went to the first one. Like, I'm, I don't like reboot movies. I don't like reboot marriages. Like, I refuse. <laughs> I wasted so much money in my 20s going to, I'm like, okay, I'm not, I'm not paying for the beta test. I want the final software. I'm not paying for this. So my wife's like, we have to go. No. <laughs> I, yeah, I, like, even at the end of that era when everybody was getting married, like, by the end of it, like, the stragglers, I was like, I don't want to go to your weddings. You took too long. I'm sick of weddings. I don't like them anymore. It's like zombie movies at the end. It's like I've seen 30 zombie movies. I'm not seeing one more zombie. Come on, guys. Yeah, I don't, I don't need any more. Give me something else. I don't need another don't, plantation wedding, which is horribly, horribly <laughs> misguided, by the way. And I don't want to go to it. <laughs> and then you always get Who the, was just apologizing about that? That was Ryan Reynolds. Oh, right. right, Ryan, right. Deadpool. Deadpool. <laughs> Deadpool made a mistake. You know? <laughs> And then the constant, it's like, he says he's sorry, and then, like, all these takes on why he shouldn't, either why he shouldn't be sorry, or why it's pathetic that he's sorry, it's bullshit that he's sorry. It's, yeah. it's like, oh, God, like, like, here we go. I'm like, just let the guy say, hey, I made a mistake, you know, at the time, it yeah. didn't seem like a big deal. Now I realize, that's, like, the best, most genuine apology you can have, is like, yeah, I did something dumb when I was young, and I thought it was cool. Like, Sorry. I'm sorry. And yeah. That's move on. Oh, that's cool. You 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 learned, and that's all you can ask people to do. You always ask people to learn from their mistakes, and when they do, we condemn them. It's weird. It's very weird. Yeah. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, and especially like his apologies seem genuine, and it. I don't. I don't really feel like. That was the first I heard of it. Yeah. I, I don't pay attention to where people get married or anything anyway, regardless of who they are. Yeah. But, like, that was the first I heard of it, and I was like, oh, well, that's cool. He's acknowledging, you know, uh, being part of a systemically racist country and making – because we all did. Yeah. I grew up in a – I mean, anyone who's white certainly did. I grew up in a, in a mostly white town. Mm. I mean, it was like 99% white. I had no idea all the racist shit that I, I was – 
you know, perpetuating or thinking or just accepting as part of my environment until I got out of it. And then I was like, oh, oh, yeah, that was shitty. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I always go on record as saying, um, you know, the Latino community, I'm like, yo, those are some of the most racist people you'll encounter, too. Like, they're racist, too. Um, Let's not pretend just because we're a minority, we're not, you know, complicit. We are racist against things, too. It's like every, pretty much every race has their races. That's the thing. It's not, you know, it's not limited to one race. So, you know, you just try to be better than, than that and. But then you get, you know, especially in my culture, you get called out for being a sellout or something. I'm like, why am I a sellout? Because I have white friends. Like, I, I love these people. They're they're pursuing the same careers I am. Like, sorry, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. That's why I'm not really that deep with my extended family. I don't think they care for me much in my weird Austin ways. <laughs> I see. They like we take care of our own type of situation. Yeah, and you know, meanwhile, COVID is killing. Latinos at a higher rate because they go home and take it to grandma and I'm like see alright it's not <laughs> yeah that's what my buddy Lombardo was telling me the other day it's you know the cultural thing of we visit families visit family you yep. go visit family yeah and there's yeah. a guilt yeah. if you don't like it's just a vi- I'm like no it's not just a virus obviously if it wasn't we wouldn't be home <laughs> it's obviously we don't know anything about it so it's hard to explain. I believe it I believe it was George Burns who once said, happiness is a close-knit family in another state. <laughs> Poetry. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty funny. That's great. Anyway, I, I, I know you have to wrap up your show, but thank you for having me on it. Oh, Todd, it you were a delight, and uh, I'm enjoying your book. It's, uh, like I said, if, if it turns out you are the headache man, and... Uh, there's an HBO documentary in 10 years. I want to be on it. I want to say this man I would love- looked me in the eye and said he wasn't a murderer. I believe him. <laughs> <laughs> I actually want to see a, a mockumentary. This is the mockumentary tie-in to my novel. That's a great idea. I want to do it. This is a Let's deep dive. It. This uh, Todd Robert Anderson is doing. He's, he's taking this to the next level, people. He's, he's a writer. He's an entrepreneur. He's a... A great, a great fella, and like I said, uh, his his show "You're the Worst." It's you should watch it. Watch the reruns of it on Hulu because it still holds up, and it's a really, it's a really great show. And uh, the episode with you and Alan McLeod, the the solo one in the woods, is one of the best little episodes ever, especially for secondary characters getting some love. I'd say that's one of the best Thank ones. You. Yeah, that was uh, that was kind of an amazing gift that they gave us. It was neat. It might be one of the best casts on TV, and what? And I will say one of the best finales. Y'all did not drop the ball. Y'all did not Dexter it. Y'all killed that finale. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I really wanted Vernon to become a lumberjack, but they just my they would not hear my pitches. They wouldn't. They wouldn't think about it. Uh, it's too bad. That's too bad. Well, yeah. we don't know. Maybe. Maybe in the future. Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> yeah. This COVID is changing everything, so who knows? We'll, we'll see. What There's no happens. normal anymore, people. The only thing normal is Todd has a great book called The Headache Man. You should buy it. It's really good. Thank you, Todd. Thank you.